on the set. So we're, we're joined by uh, Imre Noon, a uh, composer and conductor, and today we're talking about uh, her work on So This Is Christmas, uh, the recent documentary by Ken Wardrop. Um, thank you so much, Imre, for joining us today. It's, it's great to be able to speak to you about this. Oh, it's great to be on a chat with a fellow Emer who's a fellow composer. So that's yeah. all good as far as I'm concerned. Got a double, double whammy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Emer's of the world unite. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I watched it last night and I have to say it's it's just a beautiful film. It's so heart-wrenching, but also has this amazing sense of Irish humour, which I love. It's a very particular brand. And I think that does a great kind of... Um, kind of benefit to the film as a whole it really kind of lifts you up but also makes you feel for these five individuals that the the film follows um when did you first start looking at the project and what was the initial kind of um idea behind it when Ken spoke to you well it was all very fast of course um but Ken sent over the film. Now we hadn't, we don't n- normally do documentary because often there isn't a budget for what, what we really do, which is orchestral music and, you know, uh, even smaller groups as well. But we like to have as much live music as we can or a hybrid score that's very electronic with a little bit of live. But this was very different. And um, I watched the film and I had a meeting, I remember I had a meeting right away afterwards, and I was trying to skip through as much to see what the film was about, but I could not skip a frame of Ken's film. I just was in bits watching it. And this was the rough cut. And um, I, I was just so completely taken with it that I had a meeting with my management straight away afterwards. And I they're like, what's wrong with you? My face was puffy and the whole team was on Zoom. And and I was like, oh, we have to do this film, <laughs> you know, and um, I just felt like it's a story that really needs to be told. I'm I'm not a fan of plastic Christmas, everything red and green and, and it just feels so shallow and, and empty and hollow and all those things. I just felt like this is this is more like, you know, Irish people are very connected to our families. We're very connected to each other. And we've all had Christmases where um, the tradition is here in East Galway anyway, if if there's a loss in the family, we don't put up Christmas decorations. And I remember finding that to be a great relief, actually, uh, at times when we needed to do that. And I think there isn't a person that hasn't had a, if you're a certain age, a crappy Christmas, you know. Uh, So I felt it was a story that needed to be told. And what I really liked about it was I didn't feel manipulated emotionally. I felt these are real stories and these are real stories well told by people who are just really in touch with their emotions, who are really articulate um, and real. And I liked the way Ken never lets us get too you know down in the weeds with these emotions he he lifts us up straight away with some ridiculous and he does that with the music as well where we have you know some really deep moment and then it's like in your face jingly stuff you know and that we did that on purpose as a it's dark humor really it is and and you know just when you and you're getting taken in by a character and their plight and then here's Christmas in your face you know and uh I really, really liked that. I I just couldn't 
say no to this film. I mean, we spent all of the budget on recording and um, uh, and that's what needed to be done. And, and that's what Ken's vision deserves because he's such an authentic artist and such a genuine person. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's what we did, I suppose. And so when when you started speaking about it it, with him in terms of that kind of you talk about punctuating with humor and you can really see how the music lends itself to that as well. I mean, it's it's obvious in the cut alone if if there was no score there, but I think the music just really enhances it and completely lends itself to that. Um, was that the kind of the strategy that you decided with Ken from the beginning or did you have a back and forth as to the different ways that you could take the music? Yeah, um, Ken was used to working definitely with a lot more sort of uh, chamber sound or, you know, single single harp, single guitar, single. And we definitely have plenty of that in there. But, you know, I kept saying to him, there's this stunning big cinematic shot at the opening of Ireland in wintertime. You know, how about we book in and the movie with this you know, sort of magical Christmas um, idea that's ironic. I mean, you're setting the audience up thinking this is one thing and then you're taking them somewhere else straight away. And that's very much on purpose. So uh, initially, um, you know, it's, it's kind of jarring seeing something really big on your movie if you're not used to that. And uh, I was really worried about that. And, and I thought, well, look, it, let's just try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll take it out, you know. And um, and we did. Um, we did use it and uh, we did bookend the movie with it. And it ended up in the trailer. Normally, when we watch trailers of our work, and you know this well, there isn't any of the score in there because often the trailer is done and selling the movie before the score is written or recorded. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a surprise for me to see that in there. It was a lovely surprise. Um, also, uh, one of my two best friends in the world who passed away last year, Mike Lang, we we had recorded some things together years ago and um, we have Mike playing on there. So it's extra special. You can hear him playing on the trailer even. Oh, that's incredible. I didn't realize that. Yeah, Mike was, when he was alive, he was the probably the most recorded pianist in the industry. Mm-hmm. He played on Big, he played like all that five minutes of heart and soul at the end of Big is him. Um, played the theme for Frasier, Smoke Sound and Scrambled Eggs. The Simpsons oh, wow. theme, Bridges yeah. of Madison County is all him basically improvising to screen. You know, he's every he's on everything, Unforgettable, Natalie Cole, all this kind of stuff. So, um, so he's on there and that just was very meaningful to me. Um, so we did have a couple of pieces that we had from before that we've never used that we just recorded, but we'd never, never utilized them in, to picture before. But wow. most of it was bespoke. Um, and there was one scene, there were a couple of scenes in particular that that absolutely tore me apart. And those were the hardest to do. Um, uh, one is uh, I, I was very, very moved by Jason and Roxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason, his lifelong partner, Roxy, their two little boys and, and Roxy. When the when the movie takes place, Roxy had passed away the previous year. So this is the boy's first Christmas without her. Yeah. Um, a few that were difficult was there's a scene where the kids are dressing the tree, trying to make it look like their mommy did. 
and it starts off sad, but then they're telling funny stories about her and, you know, the, it isn't as nice as she would made it and so on. That was tough. Um, then there's a moment, uh, I, I have to, I don't want to give too many spoilers. It's a problem. There's a moment where um, Jason's in the car and he's talking about basically his philosophy about things. And I remembered a, uh, a song that we used to sing in chapel choir in college in Trinity. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a setting of the stork, which is a, I think, 15th century text. But the setting was by, um, uh, what's his name? Grieg, uh, Sidney Grieg, mm -hmm. I think, who used to be head of music. I could be speaking out of turn. I think at Christchurch or St. Patrick's Cathedral at one point, but I think he's ex Trinity himself. So, mm -hmm. but all I could remember was the, that it was the story of the stork who um, the stork uh, she rose in Christmas Eve and said unto her brood, I now away to Bethlehem to see the, the child of God kind of thing. I'm, I'm misquoting it now, but the idea of this mother and uh, trying to make sure, and this is what Roxy did before she died was put things in place for her brood, you know, and then the stork goes to see, how the, the the child of God has been taken care of and is shocked to find them in this manger and, and this, you know, this situation. So I took that text and uh, did my own setting of it. Um, I had some of the girls from Anuna come in and sing on it. Mm -hmm. and, um, then we added um, uh, the orchestra to it as well. Um, but that was really hard to write. I mean, that, that piece... Um, it really goes back to my to my background in 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 college singing in the chapel choir and singing you know anglican hymns and and singing you know madrigals and and all of that stuff but um it's amazing what a project would bring bring out of you as you well know Emerlanders. yeah um and it, it was just that that particular scene and the the idea of motherhood and her taking care of her brood, even though she's not there anymore. Um, it just nearly broke my heart. But um, yeah. Really. I think that's it's something that's really interesting, I think, to lots of people who will be listening, who maybe don't necessarily appreciate kind of the lengths that you go to to really make sure that something is so complementary to a scene, you know, like taking that text, which is so appropriate and, and makes a lot of sense for it to accompany that. I think on the surface level, someone might watch it and think, well, this is beautiful music and it's, you know, over evoking a certain emotion, but to kind of know that there's that amount of thought behind the text itself is, is something that's really great for, I think, a lot of people to, to hear about and to understand the kind of the depths that you do go to as a composer to really try and draw out your kind of your own emotions and experiences and find ways to really put those across, you know. Well, thank you for saying that. And it is nice to share that. And it does come from that that kind of deep place. But I guess the audience shouldn't really need to know. They should feel something that comes. And when you mine the depths with things like that, things come out of us as artists that, you know, it can only come out of us if we go there, you know. And uh, and it, it the audience then experiences something. They may not know what or why, but it's 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 coming directly from us and the filmmaker to the audience. And I, I really believe when it's an authentic place that the audience picks up on it. 
Um, Absolutely. It's, it's authenticity, I think, is, is the key element there. And it's, it's something that everyone can kind of feel. It's a, it's a tangible thing, you know, when it's, when it's right. And I think it's definitely the case in this film and in the score as well. It's, it's great. I think all of that comes from Ken because he's such a sweetheart and he's such a genuine person and his heart is there on screen. And what's really, what's really telling and was telling to me when I saw it for the first time is it's deep stuff, but never once do you feel emotionally manipulated. And, uh, and this is one thing, you know, we've all felt that in a, in a, in a movie where you're like, geez, you know what? I mean, this is needless, gratuitous over the top. And I don't, I feel kind of ick, you know? And I think that's uh, when we talk about artificial intelligence, I think we're going to need to know that if we're feeling something, we're not being manipulated by AI into feeling something because that's the kind of ick factor. Um, But but Ken was so genuine and how he feels like even seeing him at screenings with members of the cast and how he feels about them, you know, Mm. it's, it all tracks, you know, it's all coming from the same place. Yeah. Um, so I'm really, really delighted to have gotten to be a part of something I, I feel is an important story to tell. And and um, it's important to to highlight these things because I every single one of the characters, I know somebody like them. And I yeah. think that's what's powerful. Absolutely. You know? and, uh, and hopefully those that see it, um, you'll go and knock on someone's door around Christmas time and and say, what are you at? You know, you want to come for a cup of tea or do you have the shopping in or, you know, just to be thought of. I mean, Annette is such a great character and she's so smart and so articulate Mm -hmm. um, that you just think this woman is really interesting. She's a great hang, you know, Absolutely. Um, and to hear her talk about, loneliness and not being thought of like that's the worst thing to have feel like you've no value I mean I can't imagine that being true because she just absolutely tears up the screen she's just an amazing character Mm -hmm. amazing person and and so well read she's uh she seems really fun um but she's had a traumatic experience and and that's you know dictates everything um but someone like that that's a great hang knock on the door and and say you know what are you doing for christmas dinner or you know it's it's really no skin off anybody's nose you know um you know wouldn't you rather do that than get another um set of bath oils from somebody or another rubbish (laughs) yeah more face cream oh great um uh more whatever none of us needs any of that stuff um especially today when everything is ubiquitous and and you know relatively cheap compared to to years ago but you know we don't need any of that but we do need human connection and we do need to feel something from connecting with others you know yeah, absolutely. I think I think this year, especially given, you know, the cost of living crisis and just everything that's going on with the world, I think some of that is touched on in the film as well. But it's it's something that we all need. I think, uh, you know, having another year of 
you know, the same, some of which are brilliant, cheery films on, on Christmas on TV. Uh, like a lot of that is is lovely and we need fester cheer. But I think it's having that um, something there that says, you know, it's okay to not necessarily be in the best place. And also, hey, there are others that feel similar, if if not worse, and we should be looking out for each other. And that really is, you know, the kind of the meaning that should be at the forefront of all of our heads instead of kind of being bombarded with this kind of commercialization of it and stuff. And so I I also hope that many people see this and, and take that message away because it would be lovely if we we're all connecting with these people who are just being kind of outcast, just purely out of circumstance. In some cases, some people are just more unlucky than others, you know. Oh, absolutely. That's you said it. There's the luck factor. And, uh, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of kind of thing. Um, absolutely. People don't account for that. Some people are dealt a rotten hand, mm-hmm. you know, and it takes a massive amount of energy to to deal with that. And uh, it, it's, you know, so many things are not people's faults. Like, you know, somebody could have had have to deal with mental illness their whole life. They didn't. You know, it's it's nothing that they did. But that's a massive amount of energy just to live with that. Um, Mental health is is a a passion of of mine and talking about mental health and and having awareness around mental health. Um, My dad worked for 25 years for the the Western Health Board in uh, psychiatric health care. And, you know, his passion was normalizing talking about it taking away the fear or the stigma or any of that useless waste of energy Um, and this this felt like that to me which was here's here's a girl Mary who's absolute she's a dote and I can say that from having spent some time with her chatting to her as well Mm -hmm. she suffers with anorexia um, and she's she's absolutely fabulous she's a wonderful human being I've never thought of that and I have to say to my shame I've thought about people on their own I've thought about elderly I've thought about people with kids trying struggling at Christmas but I've never thought of someone with an eating disorder for whom Christmas time is a nightmare yeah and it's it's one of those things if if you don't think about or if you've not even you know necessarily known people who have dealt with that then it does go over your head but she describes it very early on and she's being bombarded with all this imagery and it's all food related and so it's it's her worst thing that she's having to face at a time where everyone else is celebrating with it and so having that kind of awareness brought to that as well is is another thing that will help a lot of people this year I think. Well one thing that that sort of bothers me is when people can't empathize or conceive of something unless they've had personal experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of invalidating. You don't have to have personal experience with something to intellectualize and empathize with it, you know, and, and this is something she really shocked me in terms of my lack of, of, of consciousness around this, this problem. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at this time of year and um it really was a, an eye-opener for me but um that's Ken wardrobe for you that's that's what he does you know yeah absolutely it's it's so effective and I think going back as well to just to the treatment of all of these people and how authentic it is um 
just from a composer point of view, I noticed this, there are some moments where there is no score and there's, you know, you let some of the more poignant things that people say and sometimes some of the funnier things that people say kind of land in silence. And how did you kind of decide those places? And did you kind of, you know, how many watches, I suppose, back did you kind of look at the whole thing in context? Because from my point of view, when you watch it from a, a first go, it's very well paced in terms of, you know, we have those great breaks and things, but then we have those moments where we take the music away and it works just as well. And that's something that is very important compositionally, but it's not necessarily something that we talk about a lot. I think that just came from just when you're sitting down to write it and you're scoring it. And and I love doing things like that where you're leading the audience somewhere and then you just drop out for that one line and then bling or whatever, a little comment afterwards. That was fun to do. And there was one scene as well where the boys are at the kitchen table with their dad, with Jason, and they're talking about Santa and they're talking about, you know, and it's all nice and Christmassy. And then then the little one goes, yeah, but it's so weird. This old man coming into your house. And I was like, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I had to take the music somewhere a little quirky and a little bit like odd for that. Yeah. But um, it, it's, um, yeah, it's fun to do. I mean, I think, I think the scene, I, you know what? I'm trying not to be too specific in case any, someone hasn't is listening to this and hasn't seen the yeah. film. Mm-hmm. But um, there's a scene in the tent where I have this sort of sort of piss take on Tchaikovsky on on the Nutcracker going. Yeah, and um, it, it's it's going for a bit, and then it's just he's in <laughs> little guys in the tent going, and I want this, and I want that, and I want that, and then and stops, and this, and that, you know. <laughs> And that's kind of fun to do. Um, and it's a bit insane as well, because you have this this juxtaposition of fun over something that's really sad. And one of my favorite movies is La Vita e Bella, uh, mm-hmm. and what makes the sad part so poignant is that when he when he juxtaposes this slapstick comedy from the first third of the movie, over this terrible, terrible situation in concentration camp. Mm-hmm. And that's it's just becomes so much more poignant because of that. Yeah. And and also the flip side in this movie is the quirky humor becomes a little bit darker um, mm-hmm. because of, of the, the juxtaposition. And that was kind of interesting to do. Um, but uh again, I I just it sounds I don't know what it sounds like but I I I can't give Ken enough credit because um just it it, it we we would definitely wouldn't have signed on to the project if you were any different a person or any less genuine or the project were in any way manipulative or if it manipulated the subjects sure. uh, he treats the the subjects of the documentary with so much respect yeah and that was very meaningful to me because like that, um, I'm here in East Galway and a lot of the action takes place in um, East Galway and in uh, in the Midlands. And yeah. I would be so offended if I saw one of my neighbours who I see all of them in these characters being yeah. taken the mick out of or, 
or patronized by the camera or patronized by the filmmakers. And, um, that's not there because it's not in him. So, yeah. and it was something I was very conscious of and I was watching out for. Um, I, I really don't like intellectual snobbery. It, it's offensive to me. And um, I just I just thought it was beautiful, beautifully, heartfully done by somebody who really has great um, respect and and affinity towards these um, these characters. And they're not characters. They're, you know, they're they're Jason, Shane, Mary, uh, Annette and Loretta. Yeah. They're real people, you know. And it's it's that connection to their humanity that I think. It, it's so important but it, it's what comes across and it's it's part of what makes it such a, an impactful thing to watch I think if, if that wasn't there and, and people w- did get the sense that it was something more manipulative I think it wouldn't have half yeah. the, the landing that we do have here so I think it's clear from an audience point of view as well that that's that's just not the case it's it's really beautifully put together but in such a respectful way um uh Shane's character in particular uh, uh Ken told me when they were going through the town of Gort uh, which is where Shane is from uh, mm-hmm. he said they couldn't they, they walked 2 seconds down the street and big honk how is Shane another honk how is you and and he goes it's like it was like walking through the town with a celebrity and it's clear in the movie when he goes into the post office when he goes into the shop wherever he goes everybody has everybody's delighted to see him and has a kind word for him and yeah. this is somebody who lives alone and and um it, it's just the poignancy of him putting his santa stop here sign on the front lawn and, and so on it just it, it was it, it's really i i just love the film you know i'm not our participation aside i i just um i just really love it and i, I you know i think it's a it's a privilege to be a part of something like that and I think that's the best, you know, generally the best kind of turnout for, for a composer is to work on something that you also would hugely love and appreciate just as an audience member as well. You know, it's it's sometimes not the case, but I think with this, it's very clear that it is. So that's that's great. And then in terms of the the kind of we're talking about the human element again, you obviously have an amazing experience uh, with working with live musicians and conducting live musicians. Um, can you talk a little bit? about how they kind of lent themselves to this film. You have some some great ensemble members who are playing and then a choir as well. So despite it not being massive orchestral all the time, it's it still adds such a gorgeous amount of humanity from that opening cue onwards. You can very much tell that there are human beings playing these instruments and that's something that's, I think, really important. Yeah, that's that's really important to me. It's also really important to me who the human beings are. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, our clarinet solos were played by Barbara Dowling, who is the first woman ever enlisted into the Irish Army Band. Wow. And, and Barbara is mental about Christmas. Yeah. Barbara also has three brain tumors and MS. And oh. she comes in, she she decorates her walking stick in tinsel. I wow. mean, <laughs> and flashing lights. So um, Barbara did uh, a concert for Brain Tumor Ireland Mm -hmm. where she invited all of us down to Waterford to do this concert called Christmas in June. And it was June. And um, she, uh, well, the the thinking behind it was, you know, not everybody is going to be around at Christmas time and not everybody can, you know, 
we'll be here at Christmas time and let's do it now. And uh, she, the cheek of her, she didn't just get us all to pay f- play for free. She made us all pay to play so that it didn't cost Brain Tumor Ireland anything for the hall or the posters or the anything cool. like this. <laughs> There's like 200 of us. I mean, there was more than that. I think there was there was we did um, some of the score from the Polar Express. We didn't just have the choir. We also had the choir plus the children's choir, plus the huge orchestra, plus mm-hmm. the huge brass section, plus the all of the, the bells and whistles, literally bells and whistles. <laughs> um, but so when this film came in, I just said, oh, my God, I can't do this without Barbara. I can't do a Christmas, an Irish Christmas film without Barbara Dowling. So as soon as we we said yes to the project and everybody was on board. She was the first person I called and I said, will you come up to, you come up to Dublin and do this. And so I called her and she said, you know, Emer, do you know, I'm in the car after my father's funeral. Oh, wow. I said, I said, Oh my God, Barbara, I'm so sorry. Yeah. She said, no, you just made my day. And I said, what are you talking about? I'm so, so sorry. And she goes, dad always asked, am I ever going to hear you play on a, on a movie? And she <laughs> never, before oh wow yeah and I said well she goes this is exactly what he's he's been asking me am I going to go are you going to ever play and she's played on every kind of show and theater production and and orchestral job and everything um it's just by happenstance that it never come about that she played a session for a film score and uh, she said this is him this is him saying you know get back to your music girl so um, she came up and um, we just had a blast at Windmill Lane together and uh, had some of my friends from the um, Contempo Quartet come up from Galway and the, and some of my absolute adored people from the, the orchestras, the Symphony Orchestra and the Concert Orchestra and freelancers in Dublin. And we always have such a great time in the studio. We always do. And um it's there's such a shorthand. I mean, most of my my music career is actually based elsewhere. It's based in in Los Angeles, and um, I know those players very very well. Uh, but it's a different flavor uh, coming home and you know working with people you've known since you were in the co- coming up on the train on to the College of Music at fifteen. You know, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's it's a really you know none of us have changed at all, which is horrifying. Um, but it's a, a different vibe and it's really fun. And um, yeah, I mean, people like David Agnew, who played at my very first concert, he played Gabriel's Oboe, my first concert, the National Concert Hall. I was like second year in college or third year. Yeah. People that are just supported artists on the way up all along. And, uh, and there he was in the session as well, you know, and he's he's retired, but he's like, and we know the other thing is, when we know who's who's playing, it it, it informs, as you know, you mm. might write slightly differently based on who's playing. And um, and by the way, there's a little bit of me playing tin whistle <laughs> on the score. <laughs> I haven't played tin whistle since I was 11, yeah. but there we go. <laughs> Never too late. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do with Melodyne Emer. <laughs> yes, yes, I, I know, I'm well aware. <laughs> so I'm assuming then that's something that you would kind of um say to to up and coming composers then is to really kind of build that community and to kind of keep those people with you because like there's such a difference it sounds like between that session and then 
someone who maybe has like gone and gotten a session, a, a group of session players that they, you know, amazing as they are, they may not know as well. So do you think it's it's worth then kind of having these proper personal relationships with them as well and not just kind of seeing them as I'm a composer, you're the instrumentalist, I'm booking you for this session and then I'll never see you again? Or how do you view it? I, I Players pick up on that really quickly as well. And they know also they they know the reason behind that is often because an orchestra can be intimidating, you know, and you've 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 a room full of people with postgraduate degrees in in uh, in music and the the opinions to go with them and deservedly so. Um, but it's it's important to build your family in any part of of film production. I mean, I I know it, when you get to the place where you have people that you trust. And I have to say, um, in Ireland, one group that we particularly write like absolute ninjas for is um, the woodwinds, because yeah. I'm a woodwind player and I know a lot of these guys from when I was a student and so on and looked up to, you know, some of these great players. And we just I just say I'm always saying to Craig, who comes from a jazz and classical background and he'll say oh my god this is a nuts flute line and I'm like they can play that you know yeah. and, and it's having that information there you know yeah. really helps yeah invariably they can I mean you know wonderful players like Katrina Ryan and and Rihanna Rihanna Denin and people like that they can play anything um and uh that's really great to have to know that that um <laughs> to know the virtuosity of the players. And now the other thing is um, I love the staff at Windmill. I love the the room at Windmill, but I'm putting it out there to anyone listening. We do need a big scoring stage on this island at some point. Yes, yes. <laughs> very um, soon. Yes, we need a big room. There's, there's a lot that happens in a big space that is very, very difficult to replicate. And there's a lot of you know, um, sympathetic vibrations bouncing off of each other and bouncing off of the bells of the brass instruments and the skins of the drums and the timpani and everything like this. And that's what makes a big cinematic orchestral sound. And really that that's that's a needs needs that kind of space, physical space to to do that. But the guys at Windmill are such a blast to work with and they've we've got a shorthand together at this point. And um, Debbie Smith recorded this score and Deb uh, was one of our bridesmaids. So there you go. I mean, <laughs> keeping the team very close. <laughs> Deb recorded, Debbie recorded my very first film music when I was just after doing my leave insert. Oh, wow. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So there, there is all of that. And um, we work with Alan Kelly in there as well. We love mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there, there's it's really nice because, you know, yourself and your composer and you're you're sitting on your own at your 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 station, your composer station working away. The reward at the end of the day is going into the studio. And uh, and whether that's um, one player like we did um, Maxine with Laura Way and we had um, uh, our friend Adrian Mantu come to our studio in East Galway and just do all this crazy cello stuff that we made a hybrid electronica uh, score with solo cello. And, um, but even having, he, he's such a, an energy to have in the room, you know, yeah. for me as well, knowing that a friend, knowing Adrian's going to come in and play this or knowing Katrina's going to come play this or, or knowing Bogdan or, 
or um or Anya or Aoife or any of the gang um it makes you really think seriously about the details yeah because uh, they have to physically you know they have to read the notes and physically produce the sounds um I'm recording something on Wednesday with the amazing Celine Byrne and Frank McNamara. I, I adore both of those those humans. And the, it's a chanson. It's an area. It's well, it's a chanson, not an area. Uh, but it is absolutely 100 percent written for Celine. Yeah. And, um, and it's really difficult. And it is completely written to show off um, her virtuosity. Because I want people to hear that. I want people outside of Ireland to hear this incredible artist and go, oh, my God, you know. Yeah. Um, so there's that as well. And it is that's on a different project that I, I can't really mention. But yeah. it's um, doing things like that where it exists because of the specific people involved, you yeah. know, and, and it 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 couldn't have possibly existed in this way or in this form or this style if those specific humans weren't involved. Um, and I, I think composers that go, I'm the composer, you're flute one, you're flute two, you're, you're the concert master. You're, I think they're cheating themselves because this is what makes life rich, you know? Yeah. It, it's, it's adding that layer of kind of, again, authenticity and, and personality and kind of instead of, you know, we all can go and buy the same samples nowadays and use the same kind of mock-ups and, and things like that. And you can get a certain quality with that, sure, that will, will fool maybe an everyday audience member who doesn't know that much about music. But even then, I think there's a there's a subliminal thing where if you played an A and B for them and the B was, you know, players who have spoken with and have a good relationship with a composer and have put have had the composition written around their abilities and personality versus a sampled orchestra there's I'm sure that you know anyone without any musical knowledge would would be able to tell the difference yeah it, it's that connection of um you know I always ask orchestras uh you know when we're in the studio I want this to sound like you you're here because you're you I don't want it to sound like anybody else, but also I want to have that human energy jumping off the recording. You know, that's us. That's us as human beings putting this out to other human beings. Absolutely. I, I can hear that on other people's recordings as well and other people's scores. Um, and in terms of the samples are getting more and more sophisticated all the time. Uh, what I tend to do around that is to, the more idiomatic you write for the instrument, mm -hmm. uh, the more that comes through, that it's real and it's live. Uh, there's certain things, as you know, there are certain things the samples do really well. And there's certain things they do still do horribly um, where you need that that performance. I mean, a great pianist is is fill, can fill up uh, a whole the whole sonic spectrum with just one hand melody line my my friend Mike Lang was like that I'd write the simplest stuff for him because his tone and his turn of phrase was just uh what's the word um compelling yeah. you know it's that uh, that was it so I I agree with you absolutely so and I, I would assume you'd 
probably encourage up and coming composers to kind of get out there and, and build that community. Is there anything else kind of if you had to kind of leave any parting thoughts with them in terms of things that they should be doing or in terms of building their craft and everything like that? What else would you kind of recommend or is there anything that you see nowadays that maybe they're not doing? Well, get to know a contractor that can get you what you need for something. Um, we work with Leoba Petrie and um, Niall O'Sullivan. Mm -hmm. And I've known Leoba since, I mean, I set up an orchestra in second year in college with my friend Gillian Saunders. And then a couple of years later, Leoba was playing in the orchestra. She started to get involved in the running of the orchestra and eventually was on staff with the orchestra. And we've just been in the trenches together on a million things, having that trust and being able to say, you know, I need somebody who can, I don't know, I'm going to come up with something off the top of my head, who can lead the string section and also play Zydeco, you know, some random <laughs> mad thing like that, you know, and she knows, she knows what everybody's strength is. And that includes, you know, the ones in the symphony orchestra, the concert orchestra, but freelancers who also double as jazz musicians or, you know, to, to have a contractor that can, that knows everybody, somebody that you trust. Um, Leoba is fantastic. Niall puts together our brass sections for us. Mm -hmm. um, again, I've known Niall since we were kids as well. And um, he puts together a fantastic brass section. Uh, the Canterville Ghost score is just, you know, screaming brass a lot of the time. And the guys did just a brilliant job. And, um, and I have people in there, like I know, Helen Doyle, Helen Mackle, since we were students in the College of Music, and she's a very particular tone, so um, which I love. So I will think of things like that when I'm writing a solo. Is it is it that's a very particular sound, or do I want a more brassy sound? And I'll divide solos up based wow. on the sound. Um, and uh, I think um, uh, for young composers coming up, um, just you know find what lights you up. I mean, being in the studio for me and thinking about going to the studio lights me up, yeah. you know, and it gives me that extra bit of juice when I'm sitting and I'm tired and it's three in the afternoon, that awful time for composers where you're just like, do I take a nap or do I stay at my computer? Oh my gosh, and, <laughs> yeah, and if I stay at the computer, is it just going to be absolute crap? And I'm going to go, I should have just taken a nap. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> Things to keep you going, um, you know, the idea of seeing your friends in the studio. Um, the other one is um, just to find your own voice, really, and, and find the types of media, the types of collaborations that, that give you that extra push creatively. Um, and people also who you surround yourself with. Mm -hmm. um, surround yourself with positive people who you know, um, for whom eccentricity and creativity <laughs> are virtues. And, um, you know, it, it's really, I think, I think as we face into this whole AI thing, finding a unique voice is going to become even more important. Um, because uh, unfortunately, I see things like production music as in library music, just going away as a, as a gig for composers. Um, so the more bespoke um, you get and the, the better you get at your craft in terms of actually scoring a scene, not just it's not a music video, yes. you know, actually scoring a scene um, 
uh, that's going to get more and more important because that's not going to be as easy for AI to to do, you know, and, and to have a wry sense of humor and something that is a, a tongue in cheek element to be able to do those kinds of subtle things. Absolutely. Um, um, but yeah, scoring, arm yourself to the teeth with skills, of course. Um, have your composer colleagues, your composer colleagues are not your competition. Mm -hmm. Your composer colleagues are most likely to give you your first gig. Yeah. Um, and what happens is uh, when somebody gets a chance and they get another chance, they get busy and then they need their friends around to help out. They yeah. need the friends that they can trust to deliver, friends that will... Um, act uh with conscientiousness with the clients mm -hmm. and um uh that way and everybody has different strengths that's the other thing yeah. uh craig and i when we work together we sort of divvy things up based on our, our strengths but then again um i go well you know what this time i want to try doing that or and he goes you know i want to do the i want to do the 15th century uh song you know you know uh, I want to add to uh to set the 15th century text and it's it's kind of play it's playful it's yeah. you know and to have that playful element but your composer colleagues are your best asset they're your community we are your community and um like that uh, you're going to get your friend if you want to be in the booth you're going to get your fellow composer who's a really strong conductor to come in and conduct your score for you then they get their screen credit Exactly. Or you're a conductor and you want to have a friend who will hold the the who who will who will hold hold court and 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 produce at the desk for you. That's a very trusted trusting relationship. That's Craig and I do that. I always conduct and he's always behind the desk. Um, and mm. you know having having those roles and having strengths and knowing who's good at what. You know you you might be some of the someone that comes from a rock background. Having a friend who's a great orchestrator. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other way around, somebody who's from an orchestra background, having someone that does great grooves and beats and can program the heck out of uh, a dubstep groove or whatever. Yeah. You, you can't know everything. Um, and we have to find our strength and find our voice. But then collaboration is key in having a collaborative mindset. It's a collaborative mm -hmm. anyway, but music is a production within a production and have a collaborative mindset within the production and not to be fearful, not to think this is the only job that's ever going to come your way. So you have to guard it with your life. Yeah. That's, that's the sheer, that is the fastest way to, to uh, isolate yourself. And um, I mean, I worked on so many friends projects um, before getting my, my own bespoke projects. I mean, I was an orchestrator and, conducted all the blizzard scores for years before I got to compose on Morlet's Dranor, you know. Um, and I've conducted so many friend scores and orchestrated friend scores and um uh you know even uh, performed friends scores on the stage. And you know it's a I did a thing at the Albert Hall last June and I had like five of my mates have their pieces on the program and and be present at the concert and that was special. Incredible. Yeah. And nobody else knows what we go through, only each other, you know. This is true. Yeah. It's it's such a kind of a, a niche career still, I think, that it's it's important to have people around who who understand that as well, which is which is great. So yeah, that's that's brilliant advice. Um, I think we're probably coming up to the end of our time, but if there was 
one thing that you could kind of that you wanted um audience members to take away from both your work on this film and the film itself I suppose what would you what would you say that would be I would say that would be to to see who you know in these characters and make a point of reaching out to them before Christmas that would be success for Mm -hmm. all of us and the Mm -hmm. energy and love that we put into this project if you were to do that and say there's five people in this film I'm gonna find five people in my neighborhood or in my life that I haven't spoken to in a long time or ever Mm -hmm. and and reach out to those five people that would be incredibly meaningful to all of us would make our work um, mean something and uh, that would be the ultimate success for this project. I mean, I have to say that's kind of what I was left with yesterday when I watched it was that very urge to kind of to go out and do that. I think it it does leave you with that sense. So I think you'll have you'll be very successful in that. I think that's that's definitely going to be how we all react when we do see it. So, yeah, thank you so much for speaking to me and for your time. It's been great to hear kind of more insights as to how you came up with the score and yeah, I just I appreciate all of your time and your your insight as always. Looking forward to getting to hang out with you more and hearing more of your music. And uh, you know, uh, delighted to have another Emer colleague. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. We'll we'll keep them growing. There'll be a whole cult by the end of the <laughs> be great. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Have a good have a good rest of your day, and hopefully speak to you soon. Emer, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.